Lit Service is brought to you by Writer's Clearinghouse. Writer's Clearinghouse empowers authors and agents by providing low-cost, professional evaluations of entire manuscripts that tell you exactly where your manuscript stands and what you can do to improve it. To learn more, visit www.writersch.com. Listeners of Lit Service will receive 20% off an evaluation by using the code LITSERVICE20 at purchase. Now here's the show. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Lit Service, where we are fans of fiction and purveyors of dodgy writing advice. My name is Caitlin, and I really wish that I could live in Sleeping Beauty's magical castle. Mm. I'm Cameron, and I'm going to cheat and say if I had to pick a fantasy setting, I would run with my setting, because it's the coolest. Your wow. setting that you're writing, or like yeah. our actual world we live in? <laughs> that, <laughs> that would be, be boring. Or at least I hope it's not. <laughs> We live in the Matrix. <laughs> okay, well, I am Nikki, and without a doubt, I'd be living at Hogwarts. I mean, come on, let's get real here. Let's not let's not mess around. We'd all live there, wouldn't we? Mm, yeah, that's <laughs> true. Actually, what house are you? It's a perfectly safe school. <laughs> I mean, not not when Harry's there. Like you know, ten years previous or something. <laughs> when things are chill. Post Voldemort. Yes. <laughs> um, you know what? Every time I do the sorting quiz, I wind up in a different house. So mm. I have no idea what house. I just recently did it and I was overwhelmingly Ravenclaw mm. but I've gotten Hufflepuff before and I actually I think I've gotten every house but Gryffindor <laughs> which yeah. not a brave one huh right I think I'm too like in my head to be like impulsive <laughs> but yeah every time I do it it's like I guess it's like depends on my mood it turns out differently see but, I've heard of crossovers <laughs> like, like Slitherpuff, Slitherpuff and, or yeah. a, a Griffin did, I'm messing this up but I don't yeah. know how you do three yeah oh yeah three well someone told me I'm divergent <laughs> which I thought was good but yeah, I, th- I did this with a, I can't remember, some other interview and someone suggested I was divergent. And oh, I, I think oh. that works, right? That's, so that should be my answer. I That's just keep forgetting. But, yeah. <laughs> you just have to say it with like a really dramatic voice. Yes. Yeah. Divergent, duh. They probably just think I wouldn't know, like they probably just would think I didn't know what I was talking about. <laughs> I confused my fandoms or something. <laughs> All right. Well, in case you haven't noticed, we have a special guest with us this week, Nikki Palpretto. Nikki's debut, Crown of Feathers, is a super exciting story that I'm going to have her tell you about. What's your book about, Nikki? <laughs> oh, God. I'm so bad at this. Okay. My book is about Phoenix Riders. It's about sisters. Um, the basic story is my main character, Veronica, disguises herself as a boy to join a secret group of warriors who ride phoenixes into battle. And that's kind of my short pitch. Which is super awesome. Is it? <laughs> I want to write phoenixes into battle. Can I be in your fictional world? Ooh, yes, absolutely. You got it. Though I'm guessing there's some conflict and maybe some war and like fire and stuff. So maybe after your book is over. Right. Whatever. Yes. Good call. <laughs> okay. All right. So this week we're talking about how to build a fictional culture. Nikki, we have talked about this a little bit on the podcast before. So I'd really like your take. How do you go about building a fictional culture? Where do you start? I think it depends on the kind of story you're telling. You know, Crown of Feathers is my first published book, but it's the third book I've written like all the way through and completed. And I think with each one, the process is different. I think most most authors say in general, the process is different every time, right? And I think it depends what your story needs. 
for me, like when I'm excited and the idea is new, sometimes it can be tempting to front load a lot of world building. You get all excited and you're Googling and you're researching and making, you know, boards on Pinterest. But ultimately what I've kind of learned, and I have to rein myself in because I really love world building, but it all has to be in service of the story. You can't, like, I mean, I've done it paragraph after paragraph of stuff that not everyone's interested in, but it ultimately has to feed into the plot or it really is, especially in YA, it doesn't belong there. So I think for me, it's always like a back and forth. Like I try and get as much together as I can to write, but then, you know, every once in a while throughout the process, you'll realize you need to know more about something to kind of push the story forward. But to use an example in Crown of Feathers, when the book starts, the culture of the Phoenix Riders is kind of in the past. It's kind of like forgotten. So I think I spent a lot of time thinking about stories and legends and myths and the kind of things that the people living, you know, at the present time in the book would be interested in and what they would, like all they would know about that culture would be through the stories and through the songs and through things passed down. It wouldn't be like living and breathing around them really. So I think that kind of steered me a little bit for this story. But I mean, if you're going to do like second world epic fantasy, you kind of have to build everything almost. Like you have to do way more than ever shows on the page to understand. Sure. I really liked what you said about how things grow out of like the legends and and stories and poems and songs and that nobody ever gets exposed to them unless they experience them through your book. And I think one way to help, I mean, world building can be super overwhelming. And I think one way that helps me when I'm first starting a story is to have a centerpiece. If you think about really epic fantasy, Lord of the Rings is centered around Sauron and and the One Ring. And the way the lands are set up, it's based on like wars that happen. Cameron is totally going to argue with me about that. (laughs) He's way more into Lord of the Rings than I am. (laughs) Okay. But he started somewhere. He started somewhere. And that's how, like... It wasn't with the ring. I think he started with a (laughs) hobbit in the ground or something. Okay, okay, okay. But, like, if we're distilling it down and making it easier, the way the movie does it, Mm -hmm. which I'm not saying the movies are... Mm -hmm. They start with Sauron, and they're like, here's the thing you need to know about. And you don't find that out until much later in the book, which makes sense for a book setting because you go slower, especially with adult epic fantasy. Whereas movies, you don't have the attention span to do that. As I was saying, a lot of epic fantasy does this, like Brandon Sanderson in the Stormlight Archive, everything centers around the storms. And while there's a lot of really, really specific and crazy world building in those books, that's one of the big things that he uses to shape the rest of, of the world. The weirdness back to the storms. Like they don't have dogs, they have lobsters the size of dogs. And that's because... <laughs> I haven't read this. <laughs> oh, you should read it. No fun. Yeah. It's, it's a really cool. great meta line from someone who's from a world more like ours that has furry creatures. And so he's talking to this other character and he's like, and so I just want you to imagine this a really cute rabbit frolicking in a field. And the character who's from that world goes... A what? <laughs> and the other guy goes, oh, I'm sorry, you don't have those. Excuse me. A disgusting cephalopod thing with way too many legs is frolicking. <laughs> but the point is, is you can track all of that weirdness. It's not weird just to be weird. It's that way because these storms are almost like tidal pools. And so everything right. that lives on land in this world is like what you'd find in a tidal pool in our world. So mm-hmm. there's an internal logic to it that's also really cool. Well, and like the way people live and the things people study and all of that centers around these big storms that are destructive and terrible. And so people have to live with them all the time. Or like in A Darker Shade of Magic, it's all centered around. I don't know that the culture itself is all centered around it, but the way the books are geared, it's centered around the fact that there are three Londons and creepy people with one black eye who can do magic. So <laughs> One thing I always think about, one word I always think about when I wor- world build is that like being deliberate. Things exist for a reason. So in a first draft, things exist for no reason. 
something and that's fine. But when you're actually going back a second time, they have to eat a certain food for a certain reason. And if they're going to eat a certain food, you better make sure that this country or place can grow that food or whatever, right? Like you have to start checking everything you've done and make sure it has a purpose. Like you're saying for the Brandon Sanderson, like if it's a world controlled by storms, like that's going to color every single thing. And you can't just have stuff there that makes no sense. Like it has to, you have to constantly be looking at why, what people are drinking, what people are eating, where they go, what they, you know, the animals that are there, everything. So being deliberate, like that's the word I always come back to when I try and explain like how I check myself as I'm, you know, cause I think a lot of world building happens as you go too. Like it can be very intimidating at the beginning, but you add as you go, you add as you go and you can kind of redirect some things or, you know, cut things that didn't really work. And that's okay. Like it's not even till like, you know, I'm in the middle of a series and like with each book, like things change, things shift. You can't be too rigid. I don't think, or you're going to perhaps like cut yourself off in your story, like hurt your story. Cause you're kind of set in your ways. Like you have to be willing to shift a little, I think, but make sure everything's there for a reason. Mm-hmm. I agree. I think you can start guessing. But mm-hmm. I think a lot of cool stuff happens that after you're finished guessing and then you go into and you research stuff and you make sure kind of all your different puzzle pieces fit. Mm-hmm. And then my favorite thing when I'm world building is when, all right, I've done, done more research, I'm making my puzzle pieces fit. And then I find, oh, there's like this really cool thing that should be here mm-hmm. <laughs> that I hadn't even thought of that I wouldn't have thought of until oh, I did the research. Time. And now I have this really cool thing to put in on top of it that makes perfect sense because I got there from that process right. rather than I found that a lot like I'm writing about phoenixes and like resurrection and that wasn't really a huge part of my first run through on the story and then I was like phoenixes are so rich symbolically right so like as you said like I was kind of going through the motions and writing the story and I realized like all these things that could happen just based on what I had already done. Like it, it does grow and get richer just through the process of writing it and, and revising it and going through over and over. You find things and it's pretty magical world building really, I think. I think so too. And I also think that a lot of what we're talking about, some of it happens when you are writing a first draft. But like you were saying, some of it happens, like the connections are made when you're revising mm-hmm. a lot of times. Big and time. so you don't need to feel like that heavy weight of, oh my gosh, what's the economic system? What crops do they grow? Right. So yeah. Totally. What kind of fabric is cheap because they grow <laughs> cotton or do they, do they make silk? Like, yeah, you don't need to get there. No. Like one of the things like, you know, I feel like we always bring these back to Tolkien eventually. <laughs> you always bring well, everything back to Tolkien. <laughs> um, but like, so it's like, sure. So you can start out with like, yeah, he spent like 20 years world building before he finished Lord of the Rings realized that even once he'd done that, he continued to iterate and change his world. That's why there's all these kind of like errata out there where there's like all these things that he started writing but didn't finish before he died. And so it's like, well, how canon is this? Well, the fact was is that even even Tolkien, even after his 20-year initial investment, was still refining his setting. (laughs) So... There's nothing wrong with doing a rough draft and then going back. Yeah. Exactly. Well, ironing out the kinks. And also a lot of times, no matter how much planning you do, like even if you are a super crazy planner who like plans out everything down to what color people's, you know, teeth inserts are, I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they, you're going to find things that don't actually work when your feet are on the ground. Yep. Mm-hmm. And so there's going to be refinement that happens. For sure. So. I mean, my first draft of, of Crown of Feathers, like it was really quite lean of world building details. Like I love to do it, but you know, it can like, especially when you're drafting, like, wow, it can slow you down. And and if you pause every time you're unsure of something and like, look it up, like you eventually have to just kind of wing it and get through to the end. And it is a part of, I think, like, I'm a big reviser. And I think that's where most of it actually happens. I mean, there are certain things about the world you have to know before you start, I think, because it limits you in certain ways. Like, does your world have trains or horses or certain, you know, because travel Mm -hmm. and things will matter. But there's so much that can be filled in later. 
so much. Most of it. So I, think. I actually want to ask how in depth do you feel like your world building, your world building needs to be? Cause it sounds like you're, I mean, you write epic fantasy, mm-hmm. secondary world epic fantasy. And mm-hmm. so in that kind of world, you do need to come up with everything. But if you're writing a different kind of book or even a secondary world fantasy where like there isn't an epic problem necessarily mm-hmm. or like, epic political debate or whatever else is going on in it. Do you really need all of that stuff? I think, again, it's kind of the same answer I gave gave before. Like, I think it depends on the kind of story you're trying to tell. And the more detail, the more real something feels, but it's not necessary all the time. Like, my kind of go-to example, you're bringing up Tolkien a lot, for me is Game of Thrones, like A Song of Ice and Fire. I think that is some of the best world building I've ever come across. There's a ton in there and it makes it extremely real. But conversely, like, if you watch the show, there's a fraction in the show and it's still very immersive and it's still very well done. So I think it depends on the kind of book. Like you said, I'm writing second world fantasy, so you have to explain certain things. But I think we're also typically, like it depends. It's funny now, like some of the reviews I get that are less good, it's because they're not really epic fantasy readers, right? For them, it's too much world building. It's too slow. It's all this. And that's totally legitimate because I'm writing, I think when you're writing in a certain genre, you're writing in like an existing framework. So people coming to epic fantasy have certain notions, have certain ideas to them. It's not a huge leap to get there, but like I remember handing the book to my boyfriend and he doesn't read that kind of stuff. And he's like, he doesn't even know what's going on. Like for him, it's such a big leap because it's so, he's not used to the genre. So I think there's like certain work that's almost already done for you. Like you don't have to do a ton. It depends entirely on what you're trying to write, I guess. For me, like it's very intuitive. Like it's something I just kind of, it's more like instinctual for me. Whereas things like plot, I have to work like really, really hard and understanding. But I feel like for world building, I just kind of go with what I like and what I think like makes me happy. (laughs) And it's not necessarily like a perfect formula. But I mean, there's such a wide variety of fantasy, for example, like so many different from like super dense Tolkien and even Game of Thrones and then stuff that's way lighter on the world building and still really good. So I guess depends on what you're trying to do. I think I think one of the things you can look at when you're trying to narrow down as to what world building you actually have to be able to do for a story to be good. I would say you look at what matters to your characters and you look at what parts of the world are directly connected to that. So let's say for example, you have a character I'm I'm hedging into an argument that I know is going to come later. Let's say you have a character who doesn't care at all about the politics and who's Mm -hmm. in control of what. As a reader, maybe this is partly because I edge more into the depth of the epic fantasy camp, but I want to know what is the political situation such that she can afford not to care, right? Even if that barely comes into the story, as the writer and you're setting up this world, the world has to be set up in such a way that your hero can afford to not care about whatever this aspect of traditionally important something is. So even if all you know is that it's this thing that we don't have to care about, it's important to know that and why. Yeah, I think it's important to know, like, if you're dealing with a king or a democracy or, like, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's important to know what space your characters exist in. But there's also a lot of little things that you can do to hint at what's going on without having to go into specifics. Like, right. how your characters swear will tell you whether the character believes in a god or not and mm-hmm. what kind of god it is and how your characters tell jokes or like idioms and stuff can say like who they're making fun of is it a politician or where they're from is, you know yeah. dialects and stuff for sure i think also it's a good point you bring up like it depends who the narrator is you know a peasant won't know the political intricacies of the world and it would be strange to hear in great detail from a peasant's point of view it wouldn't really make any sense so that's part of why i think a lot of epic fantasy has multiple narrators because it kind of helps you give a wider picture but you also i think have to keep that in mind when you're writing like would this character even know this information and you have to kind of limit yourself that way or, or they could be wrong you know they could think something they could believe something wrong that's really important to think about too 
Mm-hmm. And at the same time, like there's all kinds of ways you can just like slip in small little things. Like your peasant has no clue really what's going on. Mm-hmm. But if they're complaining about what the Lord is doing with the taxes as opposed to mm-hmm. what the traders council is doing with the taxes, mm-hmm. even if they don't actually know what's going on in terms of why there are taxes, the title they use to who to direct the complaints to mm-hmm. can be like, that is so much information in Oh, yeah. And their opinions on it would reflect their place in society, right? Like they would be Mm -hmm. obviously upset about that kind of thing, right? Like it just helps give depth, I think, depending on who's talking. I also want to talk a little bit about things that people miss when building a fictional culture. What are some things that you feel like you wish you saw more of or things that feel empty to you if they aren't there? This is a tough one. I think sometimes it's a matter of me picking up the wrong books because some books don't care about like the things I care about, like the political machinations and all that. That matters to me, but it might not matter to a certain story or certain author. I mean, I think, I think sometimes I find there's a lot of tropes that exist and I, and I love a good trope, but I think I need, now that I'm, I'm older, like we write, well, I write YA, you write YA, Caitlin, like certain tropes kind of get a bit tired for us maybe, but if they're justified correctly, if they're done well, they can be, they can feel really like fresh. And I think a lot of that has to do with the world you put it in and how you treat it. So I guess maybe sometimes I feel like things are put in without thought. And if they actually like took thought to integrate it in their world, that would be better for me. That makes sense. So is there anything in particular? (laughs) Well, okay. Here's like the, like, I feel like every YA has a ball, right? A ballroom scene Mm -hmm. or a masquerade. And I can love those, but some books, you just wonder why it's even there. Like, I think, I think we just lean on them sometimes without taking a moment to think about why it's happening. So I get like, that's, and again, like I've read some really great ones and I can really enjoy it too, but I just, things get recycled without much thought, I guess. So that's one off the top of my head, but even things like, like love trying which isn't really a world building thing, but I think depending on the world, you could make it totally make sense. But sometimes it just feels like it's shoved in there and it has to integrate, right? All of it. So it's not the best example, but <laughs> it's great. I agree, especially about the balls. Not that I have a problem with balls. They're fun in books. Mm-hmm. But I mean, if you think about the culture that you're in, like what are the spaces that they meet in? Like is mm-hmm. a ball a normal thing for people to be invited to? Or do they have like night markets? Or do they right, have yep. like sports things that they all go and yell at people on a big field around? I mean, we do that in our culture yeah. or do at least in ours i don't know about up in canada do you yell at sports people in canada? yeah yeah <laughs> i'm sure you do um different sports maybe no it's a good I mean, point like of, I mean, you can take you can take these tried things and use them as a chance to develop your world more instead of just yeah. falling back on something you see an opportunity mm-hmm. instead of what's the same can be very telling yes And, you know, it also depends, like you said a couple of times, Nikki, what kind of book you are writing, because some, especially in YA, like some books are meant to be read like you're watching a movie and some books are meant to be read with a whole lot more care and thought to the world building. And it just depends on what you're going for. And Mm. there there aren't wrong answers, right? but just know who you're writing for. Yeah. And if you're writing an epic fantasy and you hate world building, you're probably not going to please your readers, right? Like, I think you have to be aware of what sandbox you're playing in or whatever, right? It's kind of an expected part of epic fantasy, fantasy in general, but specifically like epic second world fantasy for sure. Mm-hmm. People are there to see what's weird. Yeah, exactly. They, they are interested in those things. So that's part of it too. Okay. Well, awesome. If there's anything else you want to shout out, we can, but if not, then let's move on to the next part of our podcast. Sorry. I don't have a great answer there. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So we're going to move on to the next part of our podcast. This is the part where we critique a first chapter from a listener. If you'd like to check out the text of the submission and see all of our notes, check out our website, which is litservicepodcast.wixsite.com slash litnation. If you would like a first chapter critique from us, you can find our submission guidelines there. So there's a girl who's trying to get into a ball and she does manage to get in and 
and then sees another woman who's detained because of her she's, ethnicity. I think she eth- we're not quite sure what it is exactly. I think it is though because she talks about skin mm-hmm. tone, and she goes and helps the lady who gets hit. So, what are things that we like about this submission? Well, it's funny you just said we were just talking about using ballroom scenes deliberately, and I think this one does it well because she's sneaking in. She doesn't belong. She calls out the fact that her clothes are a bit dated. Like she's obviously not the typical person who would attend this kind of thing. So that already is interesting to me because we're going to see it from a different side. She's not a princess. She's not a rich girl. Like there's sort of a unique perspective already there, and it's a opportunity as far as I could tell. It's only five pages, right? But it's she's using it as an opportunity to do something else. So it's kind of a clever like like it's her stealth you know distraction so she can like sneak in so that's a fresh way to do that so like i'm here for that yeah i thought it was really strong really really good writing and i liked she did a good job she or he sorry um did a good job of balancing world but minimal because it's the first few pages and you don't want to bog down with detail at this point so i thought it was a really good balance like just enough information to kind of tease and be intriguing but getting to the action. Like I thought that was a really like, it read quickly. It was sparse, but like, well done. I was really impressed with that. Yeah. I'll second all of that. Me too. I also really, really liked that we got to what her purpose being there is really quick. Like we know mm-hmm. she's sneaking in, but then we know within the first couple of paragraphs that she's there to find magic, which yes. is which is intriguing. But then it's refined very quickly too. I'm looking in this specific room yes. because there's something magical here. Yeah. And so we know why she's sneaking in and she's automatically being a good protagonist. She's being proactive. Yes. Her goal is clearly stated and uh, the obstacles are obvious. She's trying to sneak past guards. Like it's really clear. Like, it, you know, so it really reads quickly because of that too because you're not kind of wondering what's going on like it's pretty clear what she's trying to do what's happening the stakes are obvious there's like a subtle tension slowly building like it's really well done anything you want to add Cameron? we're the same they did a really good job getting across what she wants we don't necessarily know why she wants it but we know enough of you know the direction this is heading and we even get like a shadow of a possible antagonist at least for the next bit where, mm-hmm. you know, we have the, the bigoted king or mm-hmm. prince or who's soon to become king or something mm-hmm. like that. Which gives great which promises really about the rest of the story. Not, yeah, which well, it does. And then we also get, it's just like a great event to center it around because it's, it's a, it's a liminal space. Things are changing for like the setting at large, even they're about, we're about to have a new king. So I really like that because it shows me that the world is living around her and she's, and it's not just, you know, backdrop for her. Yeah. She's not one person who lives in like a sea of cardboard cutouts. She's and, and definitely that, an like, actor clear what's really great about it is that it's like a sentence right it's like or is it, it might even be like the back end of a sentence that's just there it, it's not like there's not a few paragraphs describing and there's this prince who's done all these horrible things mm-hmm. and let me list them and i hate him but he's going to become king and we instead it's just this really natural here's just enough to get you going and she does it twice actually she does it right at the very beginning she's going to see the bigoted king or she's not going to see the bigoted king she doesn't care about him and in the end she hits it again she says the king only cares about half of his kingdom yes and so. but even just by calling him bigoted king we know what side of the issue she's on you know it's it is very like good use of sparse language like to get the point across right it's polished it's not like rambling or anything yeah that's right. a good point okay so let's look at things that might need a second look i have in my notes lots of lines that i really liked in this and you can see them in the notes themselves but we're not going to go through every single one so let's talk about things that might need a little bit more of a look there's only really one thing i wanted to call out and basically near the well i guess like the main action of the chapter after or chapter pages after she sneaks she makes it past these guards that are inspecting people and she's halfway up this staircase when someone behind her doesn't make it through so easily and it's a woman and she's like knocked to the ground. And the problem with it, you know, the main character runs back down the stairs and wedges herself between this stranger and the castle guard. And 
it feels like one of those things. I don't want to be mean, but it's like too stupid to live kind of thing. And I don't mean that the character's too stupid, but the action feels careless, especially because she spent the first few pages of this scene. She's trying to sneak in. There's high tension. She's got a mission to do, and she's throwing it all the way in the blink of an eye to help some stranger. And that's that makes her a good person, and we like to read about good people. But it, for me, it immediately undercut all the tension. I go, oh, yeah, well, what she what she's doing? It tanks her confidence. Yeah, exactly. And it it makes me think, oh, well, what she's doing can't be that important if she'd run back down the stairs. And it also seemed like she's going to get herself killed doing that, getting wedging herself between like a guard who's probably armed, I'm assuming, and just some person who's knocked to the ground. Like it just felt like it undercut her purpose, the mission, the tension. Suddenly it all felt like, oh, that just seemed reckless. And I just thought if the character is reckless, that needs to be kind of called out, right? So you have to say, oh, like she, oh, I shouldn't have done this, but I always do this or something. Like it has to be a character trait or it just doesn't feel like a great story choice. If I can tag on to the end of that, you mentioned that like all the tension was gone. Mm -hmm. And I think for me, it was because, so she does this incredibly reckless thing, which maybe that's who she is. Mm -hmm. But the problem then is even if that's the case, that there were no consequences for this incredibly reckless thing that she does. She goes in, weapons are like, weapons are drawn, Mm -hmm. blows are thrown, and the guards are just, I'm going to give you an evil look, but be on your way. And it's just- Right, yeah. Like, Mm -hmm. So it's pointless ultimately. Yeah, and like, this is like the first tension action piece of the book. And moving on from here, it's going to be really hard to get me to believe that something bad's going to happen because it seems like- She's just going to roll away from it with no issues. Yeah, that's a good point. It completely, like, it doesn't feel necessary because nothing comes of it. So it just seems like it's an opportunity to show a bit of character, I assume. But it ends up, like like we said, kind of seems reckless and kind of a stupid thing to do when she's there, obviously, for an important purpose. So it just mm-hmm. doesn't feel... And the woman, you know, if the woman was about to be stabbed through or something, like, maybe you could understand how someone would be mm-hmm. spurned to action, but... She just kind of got knocked over. Like, it sucks for sure, but it does seem like, yeah, no consequences, no real point since there are no consequences. And for me, yeah, it really undercut the tension of the scene. Mm-hmm. And especially if, like, so talking about thinking through the consequences of world building. So, you know, there's lots of heavy hints that, you know, this is this is a racism thing, essentially, mm-hmm. that's going on. And if that's the case, this can't be the first time she's run into this. Right. Which means how has she gotten away with, is she jumping in every time? Right. She sees abuse like this happening. I mean, that's that's like a very admirable character trait. But if that's the case, how has she made it this long? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, it, that's it, a good point. So in terms of world building, it's one great step forward in that it showcases this conflict, but it's two steps back in that it becomes inconsistent. I did like about that interaction that we saw the woman with the knife and we see why people are... Or not why people are upset about letting people in, because that's probably not the case. It's more like the people who are being oppressed are doing something about it. But at the same time, I also felt like the interaction was specifically to show that, which is countered by the fact that I don't feel like the character would act like this. Right. Yeah. And I mean, like one idea I had, just like, even if she was like, maybe if this confrontation happened and like bumped into her or something, like just in a way that she got dragged in, you could still show these things, but not having her sacrificing her whole mission to to show it. But it's uh, it's a really good sample. I just, yeah, that one little, and it seems to be possibly an inconsequential thing. So hopefully it's kind of an easy fix. I mean, because nothing really comes of it. I feel like there's a lot of easy, there's a lot of easy fixes, which we're not going to mention because we're not allowed to be prescriptive. That's why we're not saying it. Ah. But, um, it's a great, you got, there's a whole bunch of really great stuff to work around. 
yeah. the scene. So it's definitely fixable. Yeah. I just had one other small thing that I wanted to bring up. When the woman screams and she runs back down, there's like a sort of a, a shaky cam feel to what's going on. So the character knows what's happening, but the reader doesn't. Right. And I feel like sometimes that lands, but this one for me, and I wanted to ask you guys how you felt about it because sometimes, you know, it hits one reader one way and doesn't hit the other ones the same way. I felt like I was confused and like unmoored and I wasn't sure yeah. where people were and what they were doing in that moment. With, with which part? When she hears the scream and then runs down the stairs. Mm. So right. I think I, I was think, just, I don't remember being confused, but I remember just like not like being, I remember being shocked that she dove under the guard's arm. I remember being like, what? <laughs> and maybe that was because she seemed like she was farther away. Like maybe, maybe part of it was that I was like a little ungrounded there, but yeah, I can't remember if I really was lost there. I think I was mostly focused on the decision just because. Yeah. I, I think it could be that what she was doing made so little sense. I wasn't paying attention to the blocking. Yeah. That's interesting. I have to read it again for that. Okay. Oh, and there was one other moment when the guard turns around with his knife. It says he stabs her with the hilt. I thought he stabbed her in the jaw oh. with a knife. And so when she didn't fall down and bleed and die, <laughs> I don't know if you die from it. I don't even know how that would work, but that's what I got until I went back and reread it and was like, oh, stab with hilt. So that might, that's really nitpicky, but maybe yeah. rethink your verbs there. Yeah, that's a, right, an easy fix, like you said. We're having a prescriptive day. And then I did notice a couple of filter words like is and feel and stuff like that. So that may be something to look at. Do we have any other thoughts? No, I mean, like I said, I think it's really strong. But yeah, just that's, it seems like a small, ultimately like, you know, small thing to fix. And I think it's really strong. And I mean, I'm interested. I could have kept reading. Like I wasn't like ready to stop. So yeah, it was good. I really loved this chapter. I thought it was a great beginning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel like we, we harped a bit on the decision to run back. But like that kind of thing, that comes up all the time in like an art writing group. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> it's true. And, and it gets fixed and it's, and it's fine. And we move on. It's one of the reasons why having a writing group is great because they see things that you don't. And I've also read a lot of books, final books that have stuff like that in it, right? Like not everyone <laughs> will have a problem with that. Um, you know, published with some it's just one of those things that <laughs> other people probably wouldn't even care. Yeah. Okay. Well then if that's all we've got, we're going to wind things down. Thank you so much, Nikki, for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. It was great to have you. Remember, you can watch the video feed of this recording on YouTube or you can listen wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe and subscribe with a B. Subscribe <laughs> and leave us ratings and reviews and comments. It helps others find the show. If you like us, please share the show with your friends. If you would like to ask us questions or tell us we are awesome, you can find <laughs> us on Twitter at LitService or on Facebook and Instagram as at LitServicePodcast, or you can email us at LitServicePodcast at gmail.com. LitService is brought to you by Writers Clearinghouse. Writers Clearinghouse empowers authors and agents by providing low-cost professional evaluations of entire manuscripts that tell you exactly where your manuscript stands and what you can do to improve it. To learn more, visit www.writersch.com. Listeners of Lit Service will receive 20% off an evaluation by using the code LITSERVICE20 at purchase. Thanks to Jason Akinaka, who did our sound and video design for this episode, and Chelsea Mortensen for helping out with some other stuff. For Lit Service, thanks for listening, and we will see you in two weeks.